Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm stepping in for Beth Heaton as host for today. I'm very excited for the show that we're going to be able to bring to you. Uh, We've got a really wonderful two-part conversation in the later part of the show to talk a little bit about the International Baccalaureate Program, or the IB curriculum. Uh, I don't know if that's something that many of our listeners are familiar with. I think sometimes if you know it, you know it fairly well, and if you don't know it, it's completely new to you. So we're going to explore that in in some great detail in the later parts of our show. But before that, we want to acknowledge the fact that it is April 27th, which means May 1st is right around the corner, which for those of you who are seniors or parents of seniors means you have come to the end of what has been a long decision-making process to identify exactly which college you'll be attending in the fall. Now, We want to talk a little bit about this from a college finance perspective today. And joining me to have that conversation is my colleague, a college finance expert here with College Coach, Wally Boudet. Hey, Wally. Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks. Glad to have you. Now, there are so many things that families have been doing. They've been looking at financial aid packages. They've been unpacking the structure of those packages. What are the loans? What are the grants? Hopefully, as they are listening to this today, They've made a decision and decided to deposit at a particular school, right? There still is some time on the clock, but I think it's about time to start, you know, (laughs) yeah, we can, we're probably not going to get any new information in the next three days. And so as families cross this finish line, is there a sense of like, okay, we're done. There's nothing left for us to focus on, or are there particular things that you especially would encourage them to pay attention to? Well, Hopefully not the former, because okay. while it would be great to, you know, enjoy graduation and take the rest of the summer off, it, it's unrealistic because there are still things to do, still things that need to be monitored throughout the whole summer. So, yeah, I mean, it, very important items that need to be taken into account for to make sure that you, that families, not just students, but families are not left scrambling when August, September comes about. And I think some of this stuff on the admission side is fairly front of mind for the students, right? So things like a housing packet, who's going to be my roommate? Where am I going to live? Like that's something that I think students are very actively concerned with. But I get the sense from you that there are a number of things that might not be front of mind, but still are very important for students to think about as they're heading into the fall. Let's see if we can put together a sort of to-do list uh, of things that families can keep an eye out for. Um, What would you start with? What what tends to be pretty high on that list or pretty common for most families sending a student off to college for the first time in the fall? Well, you know, it's interesting because I polled my teammates, many many of whom have recent uh, college admits and many of whom are about to have college admits. And number one was that students and families need to constantly check their portal. Uh, when they when they were admitted to the school, chances are the school set up a secure online site for them to access information. Email was probably out, but hey, students mostly didn't read emails anyway. So, uh, so yeah, they've got to check their portal because they've got to make sure that everything's done with the financial aid. They've got to review the required documentation, master promissory notes. Uh, there's required loan counseling. For some scholarships, there may actually be, and, and this is maybe more of, a, of an admissions uh, admissions issue, there may be the need to submit additional documentation, such as post-graduation transcripts, in order to make sure that the bow is tied onto that gift that the school is going. So, number one is making sure that you, that you maintain that communication by regularly viewing that, that college portal to make sure that you're reviewing every single piece of documentation or information that's requested from you. 
I'm glad that you brought up the transcripts. Um, you know, a lot of students are aware of the fact that their senior year grades in the second semester are not a factor in their admission process. But colleges always make their admission offers with the stipulation that students need to continue their successful academic career all the way through the end of that senior year. And so in order to verify that students have done so, they require a final transcript that certifies that you have essentially completed your requirements and have graduated high school and are ready to enroll in the fall. And we had students when I was working at Reed, there were always a handful of kids who didn't turn their transcript in and were not eligible to register for classes for the fall until that transcript was in the hands of an admission officer. That is not something you want to do when you are on campus. It is something that you want to take care of while you are still a high school student, if at all possible to do so. So absolutely check that portal. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that communication is going to come from the, uh, typically the admission office starts the communication, but I think that there are other college offices that will tend to take over from that point. Your prospect or applicant ID evolves into a student ID. Now you have uh, kind of an identity within your college community. What are some other things that you think students ought to be looking out for or parents ought to be looking out for heading into that fall? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the last piece because this is mainly pertaining to parents is that, okay, the student has this access to their portal, okay? The parent doesn't isn't granted automatic access to right. that. And right. if the parent wants to keep track of bills and financial aid and grades and any other documentation, the student may, needs to make arrangement, whatever the requirement, the recording, the reporting office is on campus to grant the student their own access to that information. That's but right. It's not, but it's not automatic. Yeah, and and that's it. Really changes, I think, the the center of gravity uh, from high school and from everything that you've done all through K twelve, where the parent is the advocate for the student, over to the student now being in charge of their rights and responsibilities in terms of their education. We've talked about this in the past for students with disabilities or students with learning differences, that if you're going to advocate for um, some sort of a uh, an accommodation within your college setting, you need to be the one to do that, whereas your parent would have been the one to do that in the high school setting. So it is a pretty different shift. And how would you recommend that parents and students enha- have this conversation, right? Like this is, it's not just like, okay, now you're in charge or let me see your grades, right? Like there's got to be a a good way, I think, to maintain that balance, especially for a student that you're sending across the country 3,000 miles away. Um, Any recommendations there? No, I I think that really that that conversation does have to to take place quite early on because it's almost an establishment of of respect, okay? In other words, students going away to college, Mom and dad can't be on top of everything the whole time. And so perhaps the parents need to be the one to say, hey, look, I need access to this. I'm not going to be checking up on everything for you, but we need to be aware if there's any additional obligations that are coming down my way. Meaning, okay, we didn't borrow a full amount to pay for everything. We're participating in a payment plan, uh, an interest-free payment plan to pay a portion of the tuition. If the notifications from the school are coming to there, really they're for me. They're not for you. They're for the parent, not for the student. Meaning, right? Um, and so I think there needs to be a, a a a laying out of expectations, and the parents are probably going to have to give a little bit more than they previously gave in high school. So something something to be started sooner rather than later. Yeah, you want those open lines of communication. I remember discovering pretty early on in my freshman year that I had a thing called a student account. And that when I went to the student bookstore in the middle of the night, because I was hungry, I could just put stuff on my student account. But then I realized the end of the quarter that that was going to my mom as a bill that she was getting from the bookstore with all the ice cream and stuff that I bought in the middle of the night. So, you know, having, having those open lines of communication, I think is, is really important uh, between students and parents so that you can address minor things like a student account or major things like academic difficulties that students may be having. Absolutely. You know, and and going along with that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but going along with that is in, in many schools, budgets or charges, they're including a health insurance cost. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for many schools, the students or the families actually have to opt out of that. 
So make sure that they're aware of if the student, if the school is front loading that account, that charge on there and what they have to do to provide coverage information to the school in order to, to effectively opt out. Along those same medical lines is, is maybe even considering some legal guidance because again, you're in, you're in the West Coast, kid goes to, to New York. What if a medical, a medical issue happens? Yeah. Does the parent truly maintain because of that distance or because of the school's responsibility um, anything that guarantees their involvement with treatment or follow-up or anything like that? So a young adult power of attorney is probably not a bad thing to check into. Mm-hmm. And I know we hope that we don't have to use these things. However, again, it's just better safe than sorry if you realize that you might be shut out in the in the care for your child. It's a really great reminder. And I think not something that I remember ever thinking about when I went off to college. I don't think it's something that my parents and I talked about. There is a sense of invincibility at a particular age where it's like, I'm going to be fine but things do come up and, you know, there are um, unexpected events uh, within a college campus. And I think just making sure that you have something that you don't need later on is better than needing something that you sure. don't have. Sure. Um, so sure. I think that, that's a great uh, point. We've talked in the past with some of our finance colleagues around budgeting and and helping students to get set up on a budget and, and helping them to understand what the relationship is between a student and and their entertainment budget, right? Going out with friends, seeing a movie. Um, how should families start thinking about this kind of conversation? And, and do you have any recommendations for ways that they can get situated together? Well, that, that, that's, that's part of the conversation it needs to take back to, to happen earlier as well. Yeah. In, a, in, a, in a financial aid world, any financial aid that's dispersed to the student is going to be dispersed against the bill first, Okay. And so there may be very rare cases where the student is getting a refund from that in order to fund their miscellaneous activities. Every, every student is going to spend something. So are the parents going to set up a budget in order to do that? Are they going to monitor? And this comes back down to the monitoring, to the sharing of information, to the establishing responsibilities. Are they going to work with the student to make sure that, just like in your case, Okay, I'm going to the bookstore and we've got these invisible charges until maybe the end of the term. That can't be a surprise. And and especially now, everything costs so much. Um, and, and that in that if there is not going to be a refund from your institutional or other financial aid, there's going to have to be some support given from home. And parents need to work with families to try to establish good spending habits. Um, there are some really nice apps for college age students uh, that can help them budget, help them monitor, help the family set up a budget perhaps to make sure that the student goes into it. Uh, it's a new world for the student. It's so uh, it's uh, you can't assume a level of maturity or responsibility. So hopefully the family's been building that in all along in order to make sure that you're not having something that's going to run amok. Yeah, I, the new world point I think is really key. And and as we were talking through this, I'm thinking about all of these different changes. You know, how do I get around campus? If I'm at a big school, do I need a bicycle? If so, where do I get a bike? How do I make sure that it's locked up so that I don't need to get another bike at some <laughs> point while I'm on campus? Yeah. Um, yeah. How do I get around the city? You know, I think a lot of students might think, well, I can take a lift if I have to get somewhere, I, you know, have a ride share, but, but those hard. charges will add up fast. Um, is there some sort of public transportation? How does that differ depending on what city that you belong to? So, you know, there are so many different questions I think that are here. And Absolutely. one thing that you can do as a family is just sit down and think through, okay, what's my typical week going to look like? What's my weekend going to be? Um, what might I like to do? And then how do I get myself situated so that I don't run into situations where my wallet is covering my lack of preparation <laughs> in these circumstances? Right. Hey, if I could add one more thing. Please. Be aware of dates. Okay, you've got everything coming up. And again, you've just graduated from high school. You're trying to have fun this summer. When is freshman orientation? Yeah. Is freshman orientation going to be the only time to schedule courses? When is the start of classes? 
When are your holidays? When might you be able to go home? Be aware of dates. Don't let the calendar pass you by. There's a lot, and there's a lot of preparation. I think that could be done in advance to think about. All right, I might want to come home for my first fall break just to you know recharge and reset and see my family. And so, can I get those plane tickets now if I right. need to get them? Can I make that arrangement now? Sure. Um, you know, am I looking for someone within the first couple of weeks of school who lives in the same town as I do or in the same area, and I can catch a ride home with them for a holiday cool. break because we're in driving distance? So. There's a lot of stuff I think to be thinking about and, you know, probably students are like, I just got to the end of all of this. Like you're telling me that there's more to do, but there always is. But I think that there's smaller pieces and it's something that we're recommending you really spread out over many conversations across the summer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else that we would recommend for folks as they get ready for the fall to arrive? No, I, I think that we've, we've run over quite a good bit of stuff. Uh, again, this is not the time to, to go underground. Yeah, This is not the time to be unaware. Um, you've got to be aware. You've got to make sure that you're covering your bases to ensure a smooth transition into what your new life is going to be for, for both students and families. And it's a, it's a great reminder. I think students often figure when I get into college, that's the end, but it really is a beginning. <laughs> and now you're off to the next adventure in your education, which is exciting, but it, it requires a great deal of preparation as well. So uh, I think it's been a good conversation, Wally. I appreciate you coming on to have it with me. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. All right, folks, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the IB curriculum. So don't go away. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, We have a special guest here for a conversation all about the International Baccalaureate Program. Uh, Joining me today is Marie Vivas. Hi, Marie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me. Now, we have just met, but our producer, Jen Simons, has told me that you are wonderful and that she is incredibly (laughs) jealous of all the time that I get to spend with you here on the show today. And we're excited because you have extensive knowledge of the IP diploma program from several perspectives. You have been an IB teacher. You are a college counselor in IB schools. You are the director of admissions at Jacobs University in Bremen and as the University Relations Manager of the IB Americas region. So you've worked closely with admissions officers and university faculty on recognizing the IB. Uh, You've also been involved in creating a series of access workshops for IB counselors and coordinators who are working with low-income students. And you're the former president of the International ACAC, which is really cool, and have served on many many national uh, association of college admissions counseling committees as well. Um, And then I love that you've got a master's degree in French literature, but we probably won't get a chance to talk about that today. 
anytime I can come back and talk about French literature. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Uh, maybe we can, we've got other hosts who are more versed in that stuff. And I think that they would be, they would be terrific. So let's start. I know I'd be fairly well from my time reading uh, admissions applications. I'm a little bit sad. I never got a chance to take the IB program. But for those of our listeners who may be hearing about International Baccalaureate for the first time today, can you just give us uh, an elevator pitch or, or a rough overview of how this program works and what students tend to get from it? Sure. Uh, let me just start by saying that, that IB is just over 50 years old. We actually started in Geneva in 1968. And, um, you know, at the, at the core of the program are, are three basic tenets that come from that initial um, point. And that is the first one being that this was post-war Europe and people were very much engaged with the idea of building leaders and, and academic students who, who would be able to work across linguistic, linguistic and cultural barriers to create what we call in our mission a better, more peaceful world through education. So baked into everything we do is kind of that initial thought of how do we bridge barriers and create communities of learning where students can work across differences. So I'd say that's kind of like the first leg of a three-legged stool, as I like to say. Great. The second leg is um, related to the academic rigor. So um, for those who are not familiar with IB, it is an international high school diploma. It started as an international high school diploma that allows student entry into universities around the world. So given that perspective and given that it started in Europe, um, there was a focus on how do we make sure that students are well prepared to go into European universities, which means no freshman year, right? Directly into the major, no intro courses. And so when you look at IB, there are courses that are very much in depth and designed to have students be ready to jump directly into those major courses. But at the same time, international educators from around the world really felt that students needed to have sort of a well-rounded education, right? And, and a more liberal arts component. And so there are courses that sort of meet that requirement, unlike other European programs where you only take three courses at the end of high school, we're asking students to take six courses and complete a core requirement. And then the third leg, which is sort of the core how do we build for internet at the time international students sort of moving between countries how do we build communities for them so cas which is the creativity activity and service component of the core was started to give students that community building activities sense and reflection on how am I learning from this? Yes. So when we talk about IB structure, I want you to keep in mind those three things and then bake in into the DNA of all IB, of course, international mindedness. So we do have four programs, a primary, a middle years, and then at the end of high school, two programs, which may be new to some folks. So our diploma program, which is the flagship, the standard. But in 2012, we actually had our first cohort of the career-related program, which is a hybrid program that combines diploma courses with career and technical education. And these last two programs, I believe that's what we will focus on today because they are the sort of transition from secondary to high school. So just very quickly, when we ask students to do an IB diploma, we ask them to do six courses right. in six academic groups. So, you know, sort of native language, language acquisition, social sciences and humanities, science, mathematics, and the arts. So they do a course in each one of those. And they do um, something that we call the core. And the core is kind of the secret sauce of IB. I think that's what universities love about the IB. So they do an extended essay, which is a 4,000-word research paper. They do a course called Theory of Knowledge, which is really sort of the academic anchor of IB. How do we learn? How do we think critically about knowledge? How do we apply knowledge ethically? And that course is a course that then anchors to all of the six academic areas. And then the third piece um, is CAS, which, which I've already discussed. But a lot of people are confused because we have higher level and standard level courses. Yeah. Yeah. That goes back to to my introductory point, the higher level courses are really designed to be those in-depth courses. So a student can jump directly into a major without an intro course. And it assumes that, that, right, that the student has had all that preparation. So 
if a student is taking a higher level biology course, maybe they're a pre-med student or, or they want to study, uh, you know, biochemistry or something like that, they will take a higher level in that subject where they're stronger. So the higher level courses are very in-depth. And I think that they, they really are for the students who are passionate about a subject or highly interested in a subject. And then the standard level courses are us saying, you can't just take the things you love. You need to stretch. You need to learn more. And so we're going to ask you to take these courses that are slightly less in-depth, but equally rigorous. Right, right. And uh, that will balance out your learning. So that's kind of like a bird's eye view of the diploma. And in the career-related program, we ask students to take a minimum of two diploma courses, complete a career-related study, and then it has its own core, which mirrors the DP core, but is really very focused on sort of that career passion that the student might have. I want to establish just some um, framework for the the availability of the IB. And I don't know if you have these data handy or not. Um, the, the career program that you're mentioning is fairly new and I, I think is not quite so widespread in the United States as the diploma program is. Do you know how many schools or where students generally have access to that career program within the U.S.? We do have about 160 schools in the U.S. that have the career-related program. It is a growing program. We see a lot more schools interested in offering students that option because yeah. it, it, if for a student who's already passionate about the career and technical education piece, there is a sense that the IB courses then provide academic rigor to enhance that. So we see that program experiencing quite a bit of growth. Of course, it is brand new. The, the, the diploma program is 50 years ahead of it. So right, we need to keep right. that in mind. <laughs> right. And then for the diploma program, about how many schools in the U.S. offer the DP? Well, um, you know, I think we're a at lot. about 12. Yeah, we are. We are the largest country in the world with DP programs, actually. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that we're probably in the 1200 range, but it may be more than that. Um, I just I just was playing with those numbers this morning, and I'm sorry, I'm just terrible it's with okay. numbers. It's okay. <laughs> I just I want to give people an idea of the scale yeah. of this program because I think initially in its founding it was certainly more international, and I don't want people to get the impression that this is something that you do only if you're interested in going uh -huh. to school in Europe or if you are living abroad, but that this in fact is a wonderful complete curriculum in many ways that I think students can take in the U.S. and that they can use it to be um, competitive applicants for American colleges and universities as well. Um, you did not mention in explicitly the different curricula <clears throat> that students might have access to. I think you were referring in Europe to the A-level program, the Cambridge program, as having only those three core classes in the final two years of study. And then here in the U.S., we have the AP program, which is much more widespread from the college board how can people think about the similarity in terms of rigor? And then I have a sense of what the key differences are between the IB and the AP, but I also want to hear from you of, of how you talk about those differences for the handful of students who do have choices between an AP curriculum and an IB curriculum and want to understand those differences. I hope more and more students will have those choices, mind you. I hope so too. Um, so, you know, I'm going to start by saying that all of these programs, be it the A-levels or the French BAC or the, or the Abitur or the AP or the IB, are excellent academic programs with, with good rigor. Um, I, I like to think that there are, there are some key differences between AP and IB that really depend on what the student wants and needs. So the IB is actually a curricular framework, right? It's that structure of six courses and the core, and, and we're asking schools to kind of commit through a pretty rigorous authorization process to offering that full diploma. And so when, when students are looking at IB courses, they are, they are looking at the interconnectedness between all the courses, the interconnectedness with the IB World Schools community, and how the core supplements and enhances learning. And I think that that um, AP, and, you know, I worked in schools with AP long in the past. AP are very good, strong content courses that are specific in specific disciplines. And so the idea of a curricular framework and a whole, and a holistic approach to to that kind of inquiry-based learning is hugely important. I think that the other um, sort of big difference between AP and IB is that 
IB really does want students to go through the whole experience of the course. So we actually evaluate students, not just with the final exam, which is what most people think the IB is about because everybody's always talking about IB exams, but we have internal assessments that are going on as part of coursework and other assignments that we, that we give students to complete that are also part of that final grade. So we're saying to students, like we say to schools, you have to commit through the whole process. You have to acquire the skills you have to show your work along the way, yeah. and you'll be taking a final summative assessment. So I think that that I think is something that is quite unique to IB, and I think it's an important part of developing the time management skills, the the communication skills, the writing skills that really help them in the first year of university be well prepared for the rigors of that type of course. And yeah, you especially that's the special part of IB. Especially highlighting writing, I think, is a big part of what I saw from applicants who had come from IB programs is just that strength of their writing and communication was really clear, um, even when measured against other students from rigorous programs. I also think it's important to highlight the fact that for IB, you mentioned that there are six courses that you take across the major subject areas, which map very well onto what we would consider the core academic solids when we talk about um, you know, choosing your yes. high school curriculum. But these are classes also that you take for two years, right? So you're going to do two years of the science that you've chosen, two years of the art program that you've chosen. What do you say to students who feel like there's perhaps a lack of flexibility and choice that you would get from an IB curriculum? Does it feel complete um, in the way that a more a la carte approach that you might get from AP feels complete? Like, how would you respond to that potential critique from a student about choice? Well, you know, I think that's that's an interesting question because I would say that the choice is in the wide variety of, of courses that we offer in all the different program areas. So, yeah. you know, there there's there's 10 or 15 courses in, in the social sciences and humanities. There's, there's over 100 languages offered both in native and acquisition. And so students do have quite a bit of choice coming into the program. But yeah. yes, the, the, the commitment to two years is important because it does provide that in-depth experience, yeah. academic experience, and also the opportunity to develop skills. You know, uh, what I loved hearing from my students when I was a counselor was, oh, yeah, I, I could read 300 pages in two days and be ready for the class. I could write that paper um, that was required, you know, a thousand words in two or three days. I had those skills because I had gone through the experience of IB courses. And over two years, that's what it takes to really prepare, right, a student to do these things well. Um, and, uh, and the other piece is, of course, you are allowed to take two of your standard level exams in junior year if you're ready. So a student, for example, coming in with very strong math or very strong foreign language might take a standard exam in, in junior year in one of those subjects, and that might free them up then to take something else during senior year. And I know, I know that we, the, the, uh, the CP is new to people, but that offers that incredible flexibility, right, of saying, right. I want to take three or four diploma courses, and I want to spend my time building catapults or, you know, working on the farm because I'm, I'm doing that career pathway. So I think, I think the IB has moved in the direction of offering um, a program that has the flexibility and a program that is much more traditional in terms of how students are become well-rounded. That's great. I think that's a that's a great place to head to a break. And then when we come back, I want to keep asking you some more questions about some of the details about this curriculum. I'm definitely going to dive a little bit into the TOK, that theory of knowledge class, because that stuff is especially interesting to me. Uh, sure. So folks, please stick around. We will be back with more from Marie Vivas and the International Baccalaureate Program after this break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I am here with Marie Vivas from the International Baccalaureate Program, and we are unpacking everything about the IB to help you better understand what this curriculum is and what it has to offer. And it's something that I think is becoming more and more available across American high schools and something that I would encourage students to take a careful look at because I think it's, it is a wonderful curriculum. And one of the things that I noticed, Marie, as you were talking about IB that I think is consistent with everybody else that I've spoken with who comes from an IB background is the curriculum is holistic. It really is one program. If you're doing the DP program, even though you're taking many classes along the way, there's integration within these spaces. uh, There's interaction across these courses. And it's something that feels uh, like a whole in a way that I think a lot of other curricula don't necessarily. How do you help to get instructors and schools ready to teach the IB in the way that reflects this kind of unified perspective on educating students? Well, there's three pieces to that. The first one is structural. So all teachers, heads of schools, coordinators are going to be trained by IB and IB pedagogy. We also require that the schools offer cross-department as well as cross-grade planning time for all teachers. And so that way we're making sure that they're working in concert, right? And then we have interdisciplinary uh, programs going on within the IB. So there's a group four interdisciplinary program where the science students are working together across the different disciplines. And there are a number of other ways. There are a number of interdisciplinary courses that hit two, one or two areas of study. And I think perhaps the most important piece in the diploma is the theory of knowledge course, right? Because in the theory of knowledge course, we are asking all of the questions about how to learn, how to apply knowledge, how to think and discuss knowledge critically and to communicate knowledge clearly, how to apply it ethically. And we're doing that across all six disciplines. And, and uh, you know, to me, this is a passion for me because I taught TOK um, back in the day when I was in high schools. And at that point, I can tell you, you know, I am not a math expert, right? But I was able to always integrate the academic teachers into into the different units of TOK. So we might be having a conversation about logic and philosophy, and I might bring in the math teacher, or we might be having a conversation about art, which will entail bringing the literature teacher in to talk about what is literature versus technical writing. And so uh, a a well-developed TOK course, and I think it's the most beloved course because if you're a 17 year old, you're being asked all these great questions and to think about it. And it's also actually a very hard course because of the kind of writing that you have to do. But in TOK, we're really setting the stage for all of these things are connected. Yeah. I think when I wish that I had done uh, IB, it really centers on the extended essay, that research project and TOK. 
and just wishing that I'd had an opportunity to take that class. Now, I was a philosophy major in college. And so I got to do a lot of that stuff anyway, um, when I got to that college level. But TOK, I think is so fascinating and just almost universally beloved by the students who are in the IB program. I think that it is the kind of class that students imagine when they think about college. It is thoughtful. There are big questions they get to engage with. The answers aren't prescriptive. It very much is a, what do you think about this? And how can you defend the ideas that that you're putting forth in this classrooms, discussion-based? Um, as a former teacher of TOK, can you help give a little bit of a flavor of the kinds of content that students might get to interact with in that class? What are the things that they're reading? What are the major questions that they get to wrestle with? And and what was the general energy within the class when you were interacting with, with students in TOK? Well, students did love it. I mean, I think I think that 16 and 17 year olds and 18 year olds really want to be challenged to to sort of reach for big ideas. And, and I, I don't think we knew to do enough of that in regular high school. And I think that's what TOK does. And that's why there's such great thirst for it. I think I think, uh, you know, a couple of examples of, of topics that came up frequently. And yeah, I'm talking a few years ago, but the whole idea of genetic engineering yeah. and the ethical uh, perspectives of what you do with that kind of science and can can you stop science once it's started and are we playing god and what are the what are the ethical and philosophical implications of that 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 was a huge topic all the time with with um with students and i loved those conversations that delved into there's more than one dimension to what we're talking about so another example would be you know it, when we would t- talk about art, like what is art and what is not? Why are some things worthy of being in a museum and others worthy of being on TV? And, and having a conversation around who defines that? How is that defined? What are the, is there any rigor to it? So, so across the board, I always found it interesting to, to, to delve into those kinds of uh, ethical dilemmas. So, you know, students who, for example, now would take the new applications, math applications course, are heading into a world of computational and applied mathematics. And so if you're using applied and computational mathematics, they are, there are uses for it in immunology, in, in, in defense systems, in uh, population control. What, are the signif- what is the significance of that when you're talking about economics, when you're talking about uh, geography when you're talking about you know global politics and so all of the subjects are kind of tied into that conversation that started out about applied mathematics so that's kind of the exciting thing about tok it's great my uh, senior thesis in college was literally titled the ethical implications of creating life from scratch it was a philosophy of biology thesis and i think you may have used that exact phrase as you were describing <laughs> tok in there so it just confirms that that would have been a class that i would have loved uh, the going from what I love about IB to what I may have most dreaded about IB is perhaps the exams, right? And exams, as you mentioned, are an integrated part of this curriculum. It yields uh, a particular score that you can earn in the subject matter that you've taken. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of families are focused on AP curriculum is because they can earn college credit for particular exam scores. And I, I they should know also that you can earn college credit for IB exam scores, That is an ever-present question that we get from students when they're thinking about the curricular choices that they want to make. And how do you answer questions that students have about the relationship between college credits and IP exams? And maybe there's a further defense of IB exams in their uh, role in terms of supporting the learning process as well. Yeah, so there's, there's two things. First of all, students can get credit for IB exams. So I'd say like, 99.9% of institutions in the U.S. give credit for higher levels, kind of across the board. Mm -hmm. And many give credit for standard level courses. So, you know, we have whole states that have credit. Florida, Texas, Illinois, for example, all the state universities give credit. But we also have many, many universities that are coming back to us and saying, ah, we understand the IB better. Let's start giving credit for standard levels. So that's that's kind of an ongoing part of my job. But... I always talk to students about retention Mm -hmm. and persistence Mm -hmm. because I think 
that the piece that, that is most important about the way IB students learn and how they become responsible for their own learning journey is that they are so well prepared for university that traditionally, even in, even in our low-income Title I schools, and you should know that 60% of our schools in the U.S. actually qualify for Title mm-hmm. I funding, which means that they have 60% of low-income students. So even, in, even those students who are only taking one or two IB classes retain that what that means what i mean by retention is that beyond the first year of university they don't drop out they continue and finish right and so we have our own studies that should show that they retain at over a 20% rate from all other high school students coming into university that means that ib students are so well prepared for the first year of college that they do better in school they're, they're happier, they feel more confident, their grades reflect that, and they move on to second year. And I always say to parents and kids, because I know that U.S. universities are expensive, and so they're thinking, okay, I can get a credit here, I can get a credit there. And I'm saying, yeah, but if you've paid $30,000, $50,000 for tuition for your first year, and then your child drops out because they couldn't really do the work, or they were not feeling that they were competitive enough then you've lost $50,000. Right. I mean, if we want to talk about it from the economic perspective, but I think that the other really cool statistic that I love is that we have found that students who do extended essay also do better in first year, tend to do more research, and tend to go on to graduate school at a higher rate. So it's not just that kind of transactional monetary piece. It's also, I am better prepared to face the rigor of a college course because of IB. In my experience, that certainly was true in terms of what we were looking at in an admission office, the applicants that we were reviewing, we had such confidence that IB students were going to be well-prepared to handle the rigors of Reed College, which is an extremely rigorous, academically-oriented, writing-based institution. We knew that the IB students were ready for that. So it is as good as it gets, I think, in terms of a, a curriculum for preparing students for that. Now, I want to flip that, flip that coin over, though, Marie, because it is also challenging. It is also a lot of work. There are high expectations for students within yes. the IB curriculum. And how do you help students to understand how to make a choice about an IB curriculum when they have other commitments or they might have other concerns about their overall balance within their high school careers. How does IB help to support that need on the part of students as well? Well, you know, at the center of every IB program is something we call a learner profile, which are the sort of 10 traits that we try to nurture in our students. Open-mindedness, inquiry, they have to be inquirers, they have to be balanced, right? There's a number of things like that. And I want to talk about balance because I think that's what IB is trying to help students to learn, right? Yeah. So, so there are a lot of assignments in IB. It, it is a very rigorous program, that is true. And especially the first semester of senior year when there are many things due in, at the same time that students are doing college applications. But the time management piece is hugely important. So students do need to learn. And IB provides those structures, IB schools, IB counselors and coordinators work with students to learn those time management pieces, you know, setting deadlines, setting um, setting expectations early on about what has to happen. Um, every school that I worked on, the coordinator spent a lot of time with students sort of workshop, workshopping, right, those pieces of yeah. how to manage your time. And, you know, in the U.S., there's also the option, you know, in many international schools, the IB is the only game in town. In the U.S., students do have the option of taking one or two or three classes. Um, what we have found is that even students who are taking one or two or three classes are benefiting from those ways of learning. However, I would say the IB diploma is achievable by any student who wants to stretch themselves academically. It is not so hard that it can't be done only, you know, less than 1% of our students get the top 45. Right. right. But the vast majority of our students do well enough to get into a competitive university and have a good successful experience. So think about it. I'm not saying it's right for everyone. I love that the career-related program 
offers students the opportunity to branch out and do these other things. So, you know, for example, uh, we have student athletes who work with the World Academy of Sports. So they're doing their career related studies on sports management and they're world class athletes and they're strong students. So there are a lot of ways in which you can juggle this. And I encourage students to think about the learning experience they're going to have, the skills they're going to acquire, and what that means in terms of success and match and sense of satisfaction once they're at university. I'm not surprised, Marie, just in the time that I've gotten to know you and also the approach from the IB program at large that you're really thinking holistically about the value of what this curriculum can give to you. And I, I think actually one of the things that I didn't get a chance to ask you explicitly, but I am hearing from you, is that even for students who are only able to take one course or two courses from the IB program, there is considerable value in terms of retaining that knowledge and benefiting from the very thoughtful approach that IB has had to curriculum. Is there anything else that you would want to leave us with, whether it's on that subject or any other subjects for students who might be taking a look at this? I would say, yes, even if you take one course, you're going to learn a new way of learning and you're going to be, you're going to be an agent who holds the control of how you learn and how you apply knowledge. And that is a skill that you're going to use, not just in college, you're going to use for the rest of your life, because in a rapidly changing world, we are being asked to learn all the time. I'm sitting here doing a podcast with you. 10 years ago, I didn't know what a podcast was. Yeah, same, same. Learning how to learn. I love this stuff, Marie. I think this is wonderful. Um, I would love to see if we can get you back as that career program continues to develop, because I think there's so much interesting content in there for us to discuss. And we really centered on the diploma program today. That's my bias, but I hope that we get a chance to to explore a little bit more fully. So I'm not going to make you promise to come back right now on the show, but but hopefully we can get you back for a future. I think you'll be able to get me back. All right. That sounds great. (laughs) Uh, Folks, we would also like you to come back and meet with us next week. We're going to be talking about some different pathways that students can take after graduating high school, physical and occupational therapy and athletic training will be one area of focus. We will also talk about nursing pathways and a little bit of focus on some scholarships that might be available for students who are interested in pursuing a nursing program later on down the road. So lots of career-oriented stuff. Maybe we can slide Marie into a future uh, segment for us to talk a bit about, about the IB program. But this has been a really great show. I want to thank Marie. I want to thank Wally also for being on for our first segment. And we hope to see you all back here next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.